0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While Ontario science advisors have released the latest batch of COVID-19 modeling data, while the third wave seems to be cresting, experts say we may not be done with public health restrictions just yet. We'll get into that. The federal government is launching yet another external review into the sexual misconduct allegations in the Canadian Armed Forces. How's this one going to go? Feels like Groundhog Day for retailers in Ontario when we can tell you about some of the frustrations they're feeling. And Canadian doctors have teamed up with celebrities to encourage us to get vaccinated. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about where we are with our battle against COVID-19, especially here in Ontario. The uh, science panel uh, released uh, some data yesterday, and uh, well, there's some encouraging news in this, but still an awful lot of things that we need to be concerned about. Uh, Global's Dave Woodard has the details.
1: Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. David Williams, says that today's optimism comes from the fact Ontarians are making a difference by following the public health measures. Without some measures in place, we would be not talking about, worried about, upper 3,000, we'd be talking to eight to 9,000 cases a day. He says daily case counts have crested, but at a high level, and so Dr. Williams says we need to stay the course. As far as whether we'll be able to end the stay-at-home order in a few weeks' time, Dr. Staney-Brown says although it's not just about daily case counts, it will depend on the
0: numbers. It would likely mean if you want to continue to push the cases down, that you need to actually push down further and probably maintain public health measures. Dave Woodard, Global News. So where are we now, and, and and what are the long-term implications of this? Uh, get some contact on that. We're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Zane Shagla. Uh, Dr. Shagla, of course, is an infectious disease specialist with St. Joe's Hospital and an associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases in the Department of Medicine at McMaster University. Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for thanks. some time today.
2: Uh, thanks for inviting me.
0: What's your uh, read on what you heard yesterday from the, uh, the science panel? What do the numbers mean to you?
2: Yeah, I mean, we were projecting much more of a worst-case scenario, and, and I think, you know, again, the, the stay-at-home order of rollout of vaccines that's been strategic, um, you know, multiple factors at play uh, that that have really slowed things down from even the, the moderate risk projections going forward, uh, you know, there's still, there's a little bit of optimism, obviously, in those signs, stable numbers, but you know, there's still a projection of, you know, 900 ICU beds, which we're kind of sitting at right now, um, and and healthcare capacity being stretched for some time. And so, you know, there is encouragement to say that the trend will reverse, it'll take time to reverse. um, But, you know, at least we are seeing kind of the the light in the darkness here in the, the context of getting through this last wave, and again, getting to a largely immunized population and getting back to normal.
0: We can get lost in numbers sometimes, but, I mean, the numbers do matter. They do tell a story here. Uh, I got the sense from uh, what Dr. Brown was saying yesterday, Doctor, that, uh, you know, we're looking at case counts, and that's certainly important, uh, but it's it's the impact it's having on hospitalization that they seem to be even more concerned about.
2: Yeah, I, I, absolutely, right? And, and the fact right now is, you know, hospitals are surging to deal with patients. You know, people are being redeployed. Patients are being moved all over the province. Surgeries have stopped, and uh, you know, uh, it, it is really difficult because we uh, really do want to provide care across the spectrum, not just for COVID nineteen. But the reality is, is right now all the healthcare system can deal with is urgent care uh, and COVID nineteen at this point in, in terms of inpatients, and so you know, we're not near anywhere near normal now. I think what we're seeing in the coming days is the crest of uh, this large wave, which really was devastating for for healthcare. Uh, And again, you know, it's going to take some time to reset back to normal, recognizing that, uh, that, you know, all these patients are still in hospital. They'll still be in hospital, some of them in a month if they're in ICU. And and again, it's going to take a while for the healthcare system to decompress to a level that's allowing it to to function like the way it was.
0: you you talked about, you know, some of the projections from earlier, and and it was, you're right, it was pretty scary. They were talking about almost 10,000 cases a day uh, if things did not go well. We're not there, which is good, but uh, the the warning I I sensed yesterday is uh, if we don't watch ourselves, we could be back there. I mean, have we learned from the past about pulling the uh, the stay-at-home orders? A lot of the, uh, you know, critics are saying, look at, uh, the government acted too quickly. They saw a little dip in the numbers and said, okay, we can go back to work and do what we want to do, and boom, all of a sudden, the numbers go back up. Uh, uh it's going to be tough to stay the course, but is that the required measure here?
2: Yeah, I, I think so. Um, uh, um, you know, I, I think there's, uh, there's obviously some evidence that these variants, you know, make the buffer for us to keep things open without a vaccinated population very difficult, um, that, you know, mobility is very difficult to balance against all of this. Um, you know, there was optimism, obviously, in February when things started opening up that we would get a vaccine campaign that would be able to catch up with everything. But the reality is it, it hasn't. And, and I think, you know, again, we have to look to other places in the world like England where they really, really ramped up vaccinations under the, the lockdown uh, and finally are starting to carefully open up, you know, predominantly focusing on outdoor stuff as compared to indoor stuff Uh, and using that, you know, 50% of the population being vaccinated as the way to get out of this in that sense. And we are not there yet. There's lots of hope that again, even in this month, we'll be able to get to that point uh, the month of May um, but uh, but yeah I, I you know I, I think it is uh, it is a pause to say we can't really open up and again healthcare at the end of May is not going to be decompressed as much as we would like and so that really is part of this that that, that capacity is still going to be pressured uh, and we need to get back to doing surgeries which is important for everyone
0: well absolutely um- because there are other people that are sick as well as covid too as you mentioned cardiac cancer patients so many other things like that let me let me ask you about the vaccination program then and the way that it has rolling up we're going to talk with the health minister later on in the show and she's going to talk about the accelerator program that she mentioned uh, briefly yesterday uh we're also hearing though from the science table though doctor that says look at you can't vaccinate your way out of this i mean we, we want everybody to get vaccinated uh but we've got to be diligent about all the other things too is that a message that's starting to resonate now
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, you know, our our initial vaccine efforts were towards older individuals, vulnerable individuals, um, which was justified. I mean, again, we're not seeing the deaths and disability that that we, uh, uh, you know, uh, had at this point in time. Um, You know, we're not seeing the problems in long-term care that we saw in the second wave. But the reality is, is that wasn't driving transmission, right? You know, that the, the 70-year-old who's a community dweller who's being careful vaccinating them, protects them against COVID-19, which is great, but they're not the ones driving transmission. The people that are, you know, out in the workplaces, the people that are forced to work during this time that are really driving transmission, the communities that have had the highest burden, including within Hamilton in, in a couple of postal codes. And so, you know, again, vaccinating, getting, using vaccines to get out of it means those people need to be vaccinated, not just the people that are at the highest risk of getting in hospital, but the highest risk of transmitting the disease. Um, and, uh, and again, you know, right now, until we get people vaccinated in those cohorts to a significant degree, we're not going to be able to open things up because they're going to be the ones that are still transmitting and causing community transmission moving forward.
0: Our uh, friends at Global News did some number crunching for us about some of the data that you and, and your colleagues have been giving us. And I, I guess it's stuff that we need to repeat here about the vaccination program. Because I, I, I don't want people to get the impression that, well, I've had my first shot, I'm bulletproof mm-hmm. now. Uh, as, as you told us, I think a week or so ago on the program, it, that first shot, it, I guess, takes about 10 to 14 days to become totally effective. Uh, yeah, and, I mean,
2: again, 10 to 14 days to you get your immune response kicked mm-hmm. on. It matures over time, too. There's, there's yeah. you know. 21 days is better than 14 days, 28 days is better than 14 days, but it's not perfect, right? And, and again,
1: you know, for vulnerable 80 year old
2: who, who got their shot, I wouldn't necessarily be recommending they do things that are high risk right now, knowing that even if they get mild or moderate COVID-19, that could land them in a hospital because they don't necessarily have the reserve to deal with it. Um I think, though, you know, people are confused, obviously. There are people getting their shots and going and having, uh, you know, a get-together the next day. and And that also needs to really be messaged that, you know, it's not perfect right now. It's going to make you better. It's going to make our hospitals better. It's going to make your death rate fall down significantly. But it's not zero by any means. And, you know, right now at this point in the pandemic with variants circulating with how much community burden there is, You know, it's not justification to start doing the things that we really, really want to do in terms of getting together or going indoors. Um, But, you know, it it is justification to maybe start considering doing things outdoors more aggressively and, and, again, giving people environments where they can use it as part of the bundle of protections as compared to just being vaccinated alone.
0: It would be nice if the weather cooperated with that, too. I'm going look another shot of winter coming up this weekend around here. Uh, but is it fair to say, then, Doctor, that uh, obviously we, we've got our second shot? I mean, I got my first one on Monday mm-hmm. of this week. I think it's mid-August or something when I'm already scheduled for my second shot. So I'm not going to be fully vaccinated probably till the end of August, uh, two weeks after that second shot.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would be... Uh, surprise. I mean, in particular, with people, with the mRNA vaccinations of Pfizer and Moderna, you know, mm-hmm. they, they, the the province is really being aggressive with getting rates down into the, you know, getting numbers down to age 18 by the end of the month. They can book online. Yeah. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Even NACI and and our projections are really saying, yes, four months is the delay, but you know, there may be people where they're getting their their shots at month three or even less than that. So, I mean, let's see how this goes over the next month. But I would, you know, the supplies are getting even better in June, even better in July. I would not be surprised that people are getting called back for their second shot earlier than they would have been uh, promised before. I think right now they're just being given a, a, a token appointment for the second shot. But Again, I actually think people are probably going to get to kind of month, late month to early month three by the time they get their second shot, which isn't actually that far off from the product monograph. So, um, yeah, I, I, I do have hope that our supplies are getting better. And it seems like our deliveries are coming on time without much, much, uh, much worry. I think there, there's definitely, you know, some people that will be getting their second shots. And, and again, the hopes are by September, most people will have their second shots in.
0: Are we supposed to, or can we mix and match these? I mean, if your first shot was uh, AstraZeneca, should the second shot be or Pfizer, et cetera, et cetera?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, the, there's no data right now. I, uh, you know, for, for the AstraZeneca particularly, obviously with the clotting issue, especially people who've gotten their first shot, you know, there is a good look to say, okay, you know, is the second shot going to introduce that risk again? Is there anything we can do to mitigate it? Should we be giving people Pfizer, Moderna? There is a UK trial right now looking at people getting AstraZeneca as their first shot and Pfizer as their second shot, saying, is it safe and does it actually give you a better or the same immune response as getting the full series of the single shot? Um so I think that's that's important uh, and um you know, moderna and Pfizer, technically, we shouldn't be mixing them, but they're pretty similar to the point where. It would probably be very similar if you got the second shot as the same as, uh, you know, slightly different getting Pfizer instead of Moderna, Moderna instead of Pfizer. Um, I think we'll have more data in the next few months. Uh, and, and again, you know, people with AstraZeneca particularly, still not clear, again, whether or not they're due to get their second shot in Europe. They're continuing it just kind of as is. Or if the data looks really good for an mRNA vaccine as a second shot, then maybe there will be a switch. Uh, yeah, this is part of the, the grand experiment going on in the world.
0: And as other countries, as you say, the UK seems to be a little bit ahead of us. That uh, we can live and learn from some of the stuff, I guess, as as they start to accumulate data.
2: Yeah, exactly. And they're, again, they're using AstraZeneca on time for their population. Yes, they've had some some people that have developed clots and and unfortunately, had had complications from them. But they can't. They've had 33 million people vaccinated. Um, and, uh, and, you know, they're seeing the rewards of it, right? Hospitalizations in the UK are dropping, deaths are dropping, cases are dropping. And again, they're getting back to normal. And so, you know, all of this is a long-term goal to, to get to the road to normal. And, and again, I'm, I'm, you know, with whatever's going on in healthcare, it sucks, it's tough. But there's a lot of hope, too, in the next one to two months that, that really that final solution is actually scaled up to the brink. And, and again, we have a highly vaccinated population.
0: We're about halfway through the uh, the four week lockdown that the government announced. The provincial government announced to you, doctor. Uh, if uh, the health minister uh, calls you as soon as you and I finish our conversation and says, uh, "Listen, doctor, I, what should we do? Extend it or, or is it going to be over? Are we good to go with based on the numbers? What would you advise?"
2: Yeah, I mean, I would probably say that you know, mid to late May, we still have a lot of a vulnerable population that's not vaccinated, and that's the reality. Even if they do get vaccinated, they're probably not even within two weeks of it. Um, healthcare is still at a crisis, and I don't think it's going to completely decompress. There's certainly early signs that the ICU rates are starting to slow. It's not going to be cleared by the end of May, uh, and, and that's the reality, I think, especially with the long weekend coming up in May and, and you know what, whatever happens with long weekends, it's going to be hard to justify opening things up. You know, I think to people, the the reality is probably Canada Day may be our first normal weekend moving forward. And uh, and again, you know, the, the efforts here aren't necessarily for, you know, lockdown and open. It is so that we lock down as this last time uh, and use vaccinations as a way to open safely rather than necessarily having to go through these cycles back and forth. <laughs>
0: Are you concerned about the number of deaths at home that we're hearing about, about how rapidly this thing is accelerating? People that may just stay home and say, I've got symptoms, so I don't I don't really need to go. And and there's some pretty tragic stories about people that just seem to get very, very sick very, very quickly and, and, and die before they even get to the hospital. Yeah, I mean, these are the variants, so, I guess, are they?
2: It's obviously tragic, absolutely. And, and you know, I think there's, there's a few things that have happened. You know, people can get blood clots and heart rhythm problems associated with COVID-19, and that can just cause sudden death. And, unfortunately, those are hard to... to delineate uh, as it may be a mild case, but then they get the clot and it turns very quickly into a fatal case. But there are people where they're staying at home and, and, you know, I think the messaging still needs to be in. As much as I've said on this call, we still have room in the emergency room. You will be seen quickly. You'll be triaged quickly. You know, people who are concerned about their COVID-19 would rather us assessing them than you assessing yourselves. Um, And, you know, the reality is, is there there are some patients right now where we used to have like a day or two before they really declared themselves or they went downhill relatively slowly. That downhill is occurring fast for some people now, where it's like hours where people are changing from on a a liter of oxygen to needing the ICU. It's not a lot of people, but it's more than it was before. Uh, And I think, unfortunately, that might be happening at home, that people are tolerating their symptoms
1: very well.
2: And, unfortunately, when things turn very quickly, you know, when you don't get enough oxygen, you're confused, you're not able to call for help, and, and unfortunately, that's a a negative cycle that leads to to death. And and we're seeing it, unfortunately. It sounds like one or two a day in that context.
0: Mm -hmm. Pretty scary stuff, but uh, that Mm -hmm. just reminds us that we need to be vigilant. Doctor, Mm -hmm. great to have you on the program again. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, Stay well, and we'll talk again soon. You too. All the best. Take care. Dr. Zane Jagler, of course, from McMaster University in St. Joe's.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: In Ottawa, things are, uh, well, uh, unfolding. I, not maybe as they might, but they are unfolding nonetheless. The controversy continues, of course, about the uh, accusations of military sexual misconduct. Well, former Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbour will now lead the federal government in billing an independent review of the military's handling of sexual assault, harassment, and other misconduct. Defense Minister and acknowledged yesterday that military members who are victims of misconduct don't trust the system these days but says that will soon change
3: the actions of the past and what they have seen we regret that we didn't ha- not have a system in place that supports them but we are absolutely committed to doing this and the work that you will see now is how we're going to build on those actions and regain that trust
0: Well, a lot of skepticism about this. Uh, To talk about what might be going on here, we're pleased to welcome to the program Stephanie Carvin, who is an Associate Professor of International Affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. She's also a former National Security Analyst for CSIS. Uh, Professor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today.
3: Hey, thanks for having me on.
0: I guess the question I'll ask you is the same question a lot of people are asking in Ottawa these days. Why should this time be any different?
3: I don't know. You know, it's not fashionable to say, I don't know, but I don't know. And frankly, that is disappointing to say. The fact is we have had not just the study that was done in 20, uh, 2015. There's also been studies done by the Senate. There were actually uh, investigations being conducted in the House of Commons, but the Liberal MPs decided to shut that down. Um, and so, you know, like we've had, and you know, basically on the idea that, OK, well, we have enough and we can write up the study. So why are they commissioning another study? I mean, uh, look, this isn't to insult uh, the person who's doing it. Louise Arbour is a noted human rights expert. I have no doubt that she will do her job well. But this is, um, you know, you know the, the author of the 2015 report, uh, Marie Deschamps, who, who has come out and said, you know, not much has changed. So if not much has changed, why are we doing another study? It, it just doesn't make any sense at best, this is a way to try and look like you're doing something without doing anything. And, you know, uh, it, it, it's just extremely and deeply frustrating.
0: Well, and I agree with your assessment, by the way. I think most of us have extreme uh, confidence in, in Justice Arbery. She She's a remarkable record, of course, of, of public service uh, for many, many years. Uh, but so also, as you mentioned, did former Supreme Court just, uh, Justice Marie Deshapp, when she did her report in 2015. Uh, and she used some rather pointed language, I guess, to talk about the, the atmosphere that was going on. I guess the thing that What I'm still baffled about here, as as you say, they're moving on to do this anyway, is uh, the minister, Minister Sajan, basically admitted yesterday that the reason the 2015 report uh, didn't go anywhere is because the senior brass didn't pay attention to it and didn't want to, which tells me there's a personnel issue here uh, that, that needs to be addressed before they go any further.
3: Yeah, I don't think the issue here is a lack of knowledge by any stretch of the imagination, right? Um, And the kind of pretense that it is, um, is is a problem. I also think, I mean, like, look, we are going to step back from this issue. I think it's actually a real problem with this government that rather than making decisions, the first, like their automatic instinct is to hire a retired federal court or Supreme Court justice to do a report and tell them what to do, right? They're not even taking responsibility for anything, whether it's, the governor general, <laughs> you know, it seems to be that, you know, whether it's this issue with, with, um, you know, sexual assaults in the military, we always seem to be just waiting for a former retired Supreme court justice to tell us what to do. And in this case, it's doubly frustrating because we, we know what the answer is. And the answer is, you know, the third recommendation of the 2015 report, which was to create an independent reporting mechanism, because, you know, the problem is time and time again, we've just seen that the Canadian armed forces leadership is not taking this issue seriously, is continuously trying to sweep it under the rug, or in some cases, as we have just learned, were actively participating in the kind of uh, sexual harassment uh, activity themselves and and had no interest in trying to combat it. So I think that this is what is um, just so deeply frustrating, is that we have a pretty good idea of what the solution is. For whatever reason, the minister has decided not to put the solution in place and i honestly don't understand why now to be fair the minister said yesterday he's like well we can't just set up a independent unit our independent uh, institution but also, you know, and, and there is an ounce of truth in what he's saying, but he's, he's hiding behind this ounce of truth, which is that, yeah, I mean, you can't just set up an independent reporting mechanism and then wash your hands and walk away. Um, you know, it will take a, a bureaucracy to support it, to make sure that the recommendations and actions... Um all of the me- uh, reporting mechanism will be taken seriously by CAF. So you have to make sure that, you know, the, that there's some kind of lines of communication, that there's policies put in place. Yeah, I mean, you do actually need to do work to, to make this happen. But, you know, there's a number of things that just are so frustrating. One, he's been sitting on this report for six years. That's the reality. The second thing is there was really no steps announced to suggest that the minister is at all interested in moving this direction and i I, again it just boggles my mind why why this is happening when we know what the problem is we know that this problem is festering and you know i just and i pardon the rant here but i want to be clear this isn't just about you know You know, women in the military, it it, it is, I mean, obviously it's about the victims, it's about people who've had their lives and careers ruined, and they have to be front and center in in thinking about this issue. But there's a bigger issue at stake here as well, which is that, you know, this is going to hurt recruitment, this is hurting retainment. Um, I'm desperately concerned that senior leaders seem to have been involved in, you know, illegal, if not borderline illegal (laughs) activity um, with regard to sexual harassment and, and these kinds of activities. Um, and that this was covered up and no, this seems to have been known about and covered up for, for years and years and years. I mean, this is the kind of blackmail stuff that you worry about. These people had access to all kinds of intelligence and they're hiding the fact that they may have had two children with the women they were sexually harassing, The like, you know, the CDS, the chief of defense staff. I mean, this is crazy. This is, this is a really bad thing. So this doesn't just hurt the people. It hurts the armed forces generally. This is hurting our military readiness. This is hurting, you know, our ability for, our, you know, the ability for the military to perform. This is hurting, uh, you know, there's the potential here for insider threats and the leakage of uh, intelligence to adversarial countries. All kinds of bad surround this issue. So why you wouldn't take, why you wouldn't do absolutely everything you could as minister to fix it? Is just mind-boggling to me and it's very disappointing
0: well and uh, because the you know they say what's changed well uh, you know it's changed as you just mentioned uh, the last two chiefs of staff have been you know accused of this i mean you know the Vance of course and those allegations which as you say we are, have been around for six years probably even longer than that uh and then so he leaves and and our admiral Mcdonald comes in there before he even gets to put his family picture on the desk he's been charged with or accused of this anyway and he has to step down uh and and then we've heard stories from a number of the people uh, as you know, Stephanie, that are saying, look, uh, we did try to follow through on this. And, and and what happens is if it goes into the system, oftentimes the people that are accused of are, are, are being offered a deal to plead down to some, a lesser offense, and it just is swept under the carpet. There's a systemic problem here that they don't seem to want to address.
3: Yeah, I think that's it. And it, like you said, as if the minister, you know, he's apologized, but he's done nothing about it. And, uh, you know, an apology without action is meaningless. And this is why it's such a problem. And I honestly think that, you know, what's so deeply frustrating about this as well is that, you know, there's this sense, I think, in the liberal government that this issue is just going to go away. You know, that they'll be able, you know, and, and that's the whole strategy here, of course, which is, you know, we'll have, you know, bring in a Supreme Court justice to write a report in a year after the next election when everyone's hopefully forgotten that this happened. And then, you know, nothing will happen again. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it's so cynical. It's so awful. And, you know, this betting on, You know, Canadians forgetting that these things uh, have happened is is just really awful. Um, There's just no sense of accountability or willingness to change. And um, yeah, as someone who studies security issues and, and I should say, I mean, two of my best I mean, it's a little bit personal for me, two of my best friends. Um, have, have had experiences with, uh, being sexually harassed in the military. Uh, one of my friends, Leah West, uh, she's also my colleague at Carleton University. Uh, you know, she did a story with the New York Times talking about how she was, uh, date raped, uh, while serving in Afghanistan. And it's a hard thing to read. And, you know, when, you know, when I see their, you know, their disappointments, at the inaction it's just so heartbreaking to me Uh, and it isn't even about me i can't even imagine what you know women are feeling who serve in the armed forces um it's just it just sends all of the wrong signals that you know we're going to bet on the fact that canadians are going to forget this we we think that you know this doesn't really matter in the long run uh we're just going to pretend that we're doing something and you know and then they also took this you know um uh, you know, they've now appointed a woman. They've promoted her from uh, lieutenant to general to major general overnight, basically, and said, OK, this is now your responsibility to fix this. And, you know, Mercedes Stevenson with Global News has reported that this isn't a, a role that she wanted. You know, they basically dumped the responsibility onto fixing this onto women, uh, women who are already exhausted from having tried to do something about sexual harassment for so many years. It's it's a poison chalice. It's It's just ridiculous.
0: Uh, Lieutenant General Wayne Eyre, who's now the acting Chief of Defense Staff, uh, w- was commenting on this yesterday and said, "Look at the military uh, senior advise the senior folks in the military are going to the court is have to welcome scrutiny with humility. What are the chances?
3: you know I, I've heard a lot of very positive things about the acting CDS. Um, there's a lot of people who believe that he does actually want to do the right thing." um and that you know we have seen some statements from him that i think have been very positive so i don't want to trash him uh <laughs> maybe in the same way that i'm willing to trash the minister um because i i you know i i get the sense from uh you know the the, the people i speak to that actually he's you know he's a good egg um he you know, a lot of people who serve with him have a lot of confidence in him and i think he realizes how serious this is but he can't change things without the minister. Um, You know, there's only so much that, you know, the Canadian Armed Forces can do if there's no political will to force the change. Um, I think everyone now recognizes that there's a problem. I think that it's, it's just the willingness to act. So like I said, I have no doubt that, you know, the acting CDS wishes to do something about this. I get the impression from you know even senior DND staff, Jody Thomas, uh, the uh, deputy minister who spoke yesterday. Um, she's a veteran herself, um, and you know she's she's kind of been in these roles for a very long time. And uh, she, I, I get the impression that she really wants to do something about this. The problem here, the the, the spanner in the works, as it is, is the political leadership. Um, and so it's really just going to depend on whether or not the liberal government decides to eventually act after commissioning yet another report that's going to tell them basically the exact same thing um, going forward. Um, And so, yeah, it's just a kind of disappointing situation.
0: Well, but this is what governments do. I mean, of all political stripes. And you've been, Stephanie, for years following this. you know the, you know, when there's an issue like this, they, as you say, first of all, they have to appoint a commission. Uh, we're putting a lot of work now. Retired Supreme Court justices are getting a lot of work in this country, and that's good to know. Uh, the last time they did this, <laughs> good when, uh, could
3: work if you can get it. <laughs>
0: yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Uh, when when uh, former Justice of course Deschamps released her report, the, the government came out with Operation Honor. That sounds pretty impressive, doesn't it? Uh, and it was supposed to be the uh, you know formal initiative for. Out sexual misconduct, there were six recommendations, as you alluded to, the, and that, part of that's bad. On, that's on the government because they didn't in, initiate any of the stuff that was in the recommendations. Clearly, neither did the military. Uh, I, I That's why I asked you right off the top: of Why is this going to be any different? And I have complete faith in, in, in former Justice Arbour, of course, to do something about this. But once she writes the report and sends it in, it's basically out of her hands.
3: Yeah, exactly, and that's what Marie um, Deshaun has said as well, right? um You know, like basically, I wrote this report. Um, you know, a friend of mine. It's sad, but like a friend of mine um, who's who's in government said, you know, when she saw, you know, I was tweeting a lot about this yesterday and wrote to me and said, you know, Mar- Louise Arbour should just actually just print out her name on a blank piece of paper and staple it on top of the Deschamps report, and, wow. <laughs> you know, kind of, because well now uh, now we should be fair. Uh, Marie Deschamps come out and said that um, she does believe that Marie, Ar- uh, sorry, Louise Arbour has a much larger ma- a mandate than she than, than did back in 2015, so that is one positive thing. But, you know, I think you and I are in agreement on this point, is that we all know what the problems are. We know what the recommendations are. It's not, you know, the Canadian Armed Forces seems now, finally, to have the right people in place to make the change, but the minister doesn't seem to want to act, And I, I don't really know how to respond to that. It's, it's just other than kind of, again, rage tweeting. And, and being disappointed. Um, and and it just seems to be like, the, the you know, the Liberal government just came out with this big feminist budget. You know, uh, we see the Deputy Prime Minister wearing a, a, a T-shirt that says, Je parle feminist And I'm just like, <laughs> you know, put your money, Like, they're, they're trying to put money where their mouth is, but they, they just seem, you know, all, none of this seems to apply to the women of the Canadian Armed Forces. And I should say, men as well. And And the other thing is here, too, the other disappointing thing is we have to be aware... That, you know, when we find that there's this kind of, you know, toxic, the word toxic is thrown around so much, but I don't know how else to describe it. When this behavior is out there, it also can cover up other kinds of behavior as well, or permit it. So, you know, I mean, we have, if you allow sexual abuse of women, uh, there's probably the sexual abuse of men. There's probably, you know, it's probably covering up certain kinds of racism and discrimination that's taking place as well, because, you know, it's very seldom you only have one kind of toxic behavior. So, I mean, this is why this absolutely has to be rooted out and things need to be done about it. And just kicking the can down the road is no longer acceptable.
0: Do you buy into what uh, the government aspects of this are saying, that they, they were not aware of this, they were not aware of the severity? I mean, somewhere through the chain of command, I mean, somebody knew something.
3: Well, this is just it. But I think, you know, it, it's not just that they didn't know something. It's like I don't think they wanted to know. I think this is the thing, everything I read about the minister, as soon as he found out about these allegations, the first thing he said is, I don't want to know. He said, take this, take this elsewhere. I mean, this this is the minister. And, you know, he's saying, well, I didn't want to interfere in an investigation. But, you know, and I agree, you can't have political interference in, you know, investigations of kind of this serious borderline criminal behavior. Um, That's very, very important. But at the same time, imagine if, you know, Someone came to you and said, yeah, my, you know, I'm being or I know of someone who is, you know, sexually harassing one of your employees and has been doing it in, in, for a long time. And uh, there's a number of reports and you say, OK, well, investigate it. And then you never ask another question about it. Like you never say, oh, by the way, what did the investigation find? Or, by the way, <laughs> what happened to that? You know, he, the, the minister just seems like so fundamentally uncurious as to be negligent in this manner so yeah you know what i believe he didn't want to know um he didn't know because he didn't want to know but that wasn't his job his job wasn't to to ignore the situation and and pass it on to others his job was to do something about this and he has done nothing he should absolutely resign
0: well and you know what if they had done what uh Justice Deschamps had recommended five years before that to set up this independent body. Ministers just could have said, yes, yeah, send it over there. But they didn't do that. Uh, so, you know, they've, they've caught in their, I uh, guess, hoisted upon their own petard in a situation like that, or their own action, as it might be. Uh, Stephanie, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for your candid views on this. We really appreciate it. We'll be watching with great interest to see how this rolls out. Uh, stay well, and we'll talk again soon, I'm sure.
3: Well, thank you so much. Thanks for letting me yell on the radio
0: on a Friday That's (laughs) okay. Always a platform here for you. Thanks again. Uh, Professor Stephanie Carvin, of course, from Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, I want to talk about small businesses and the way that uh, they have been impacted uh, by lockdown, no lockdown, et cetera, et cetera. It's been a very confusing, very problematic, and very challenging time for small businesses. Uh, There's a great op-ed that the Toronto Sun published, actually, the other day from uh, Bruce Winder. Bruce is a retail analyst and author uh joins us on the bill Kelly show to talk about this bruce it's been a while thanks for joining us on the show good to have you back
1: yeah you too thanks for having me on appreciate it
0: uh great piece uh, and i think you've really kind of captured uh, the essence of uh, what an awful lot of small businesses are, are going through right now with lockdown no lockdown uh, and, and as you mentioned here this has been more than challenging this is uh, this has been a monumental challenge for an awful lot of small businesses how are they doing
1: Well, it's been super tough. I mean, you know, the majority of small businesses have been sort of caught in between everything. Um, You know, they're not the big box stores that can open up. Um, They don't have big balance sheets and big assets that they can uh, borrow against. And they're sort of the forgotten bunch uh, here uh, between what governments are doing. Uh, You know, governments have tried to put forth some subsidies and some have been good, but some have been slow and some have been archaic and and they, it, it's just they're basically a lot of them are just living on life support right now, waiting and hoping that this thing ends uh, soon um, so that they don't have to take on more debt.
0: Let me ask you about that, because I know you've talked to an awful lot of these folks that are in this predicament right now, and and the the, the idea about the money not coming as quickly as it should, I, th- I find very distressing, <laughs> not as dist- distressing as I'm sure the business owners do, but, you know, when the CERB program came out, they basically threw money out the door and said, just apply, you're going to get your money, just apply, you're going to get your money, and uh, to a lot of people, it did. I mean, within days, uh, they were getting checks, and, and that's great, I mean, because they, they needed the money. Why, why is this a, a, apparently a different standard for small businesses?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I think a lot of Canadians feel like that is, you know, governments were pretty quick to give the serve away. And, and, and that was good. I think that, w- that helped save a lot of people. You can argue that, you know, to some degree it was too blunt and not specific enough. But mm-hmm. kind of the opposite thing happened with small business. I mean, you know, um, at first they, they, they asked landlords to apply and not the tenants, you know, and money has been slow flowing. So I don't really know why that's happened. But I think there's going to be um, some bitterness here, you know, over the next several years in terms of how small business was sort of forgotten during this whole thing.
0: They're accumulating debt, Uh, and as you say, initially, because some of the programs that the government's offered were really just, you know, no-interest loans or low-interest loans, which only helps, you know, add to their debt load. How are they going to recover? I mean, if this thing were to end, say, you know, Thanksgiving or heading into the Christmas season, God helping that, you know, it's going to happen that way. Uh, these the troubles for these small businesses are not over by any stretch of the imagination.
1: No, not at all. I mean, they're going to face a couple of things. To your point, you know, the majority of government subsidies have been um, uh, loans versus grants. There have been some grants, which are great, but majority loans. And it's going to take a long time to pay that off. And let's, let's face it, a lot of these small businesses, their gross margins and net margins are very tight. So it's not like they have huge profits that they can use to pay down debt every month or every year. So it's going to be tough. And even if they do have enough to pay down the debt, they won't be able to invest in their business because there'll be nothing left. And some of them, sadly, are going to wake up when this is over and the world will have changed in terms of how just what people buy and how they buy it. And they may have to close down. So they may have sort of went through this for nothing, you know, where. They kind of wrote it out, and then eventually, when shoppers open up again, it's just they just don't want their products anymore. So it, it's just a really sad story for small business right now.
0: Or if they do want the product, there's another facet or another way in which the, you know we we've ordered it now. I mean, let's face it, online shopping has ballooned, uh, as you mentioned in the in the piece. Uh, is it, is that the, the new way that we're going to do things right now? I mean, I, I've talked to a few small business people that just said, I don't know, if they're going to come through the door again. I mean, they're they're still buying the stuff, but they're buying it online. Yeah,
1: I'm, a, I'm a, bit ad, a, big, a big advocate for online shopping and e-commerce. It's the new normal. And that's why you'll see in this op-ed, I really, you know, sort of um, urge small business to get on the train of e-commerce. And a lot of them have, as you can read in the op-ed. Yeah. But I do think that, you know, it's very wise to have some type of e-commerce presence, sell on some marketplaces like Amazon, you know, use Shopify to build a website, use all the players. There's lots of players there that can help you. And that's one of the things that I recommend for small businesses to try to get online as soon as possible if you're not already, because guess what? A lot of this online stuff is going to stick long after this is gone. So I think it's the right thing to do.
0: And you're right. You're getting into the characteristic of shoppers too, and you mentioned that in the piece. So, I mean, I'm an avid reader. I usually, especially now through the lockdown, I go through a couple of books a week at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and Indigo is closed, so I'm not getting any books. And I don't want online. I, I don't do. You know, I like to browse when I go to a bookstore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm I'm waiting for the doors to open. And I think there's a lot more uh, shoppers uh, and consumers that are probably in the same boat.
1: Yeah, I think definitely there's going to be a surge to brick and mortar retail when things start to open up. And the key is not to ignore brick and mortar retail. It's more just to say, okay, you know, I've got this store. Some people are going to come to my store when this is over, people like yourself. But some people are going to say, you know what, I really enjoyed the convenience of online shopping. So as a small business owner, you need to have both. And then you need to find a way to integrate the two and have the two create a synergy between online and brick and mortar. I think that's really what we're going to see when we're done here. You're going to see a sort of a hybrid approach where some people buy, more people buy online versus previously but still a lot of people are going to want to buy in store
0: what's this going to do to employment though because I I know you touched on that in the op-ed piece Uh, you know if if, in fact you know there's going to be an increase in online shopping uh, you know they're going to open the doors again whenever that's going to happen uh and they're going to say you know what i don't need 10 employees anymore
1: yeah i think it's i think it's a fair point i mean i think what you're you're already starting to see and i think you're going to see more of this is you're going to see workers change uh what they're doing so less workers will be needed for actual retail stores and more workers will migrate to maybe fulfillment centers, warehouses, transportation services, last mile drivers. So you're going to see people ebb and flow, the workforce ebb and flow toward the new e-commerce channel. And that's what I recommend a lot of folks are doing. If you're not really, if you're not, finding a job think about how you can get back into e-commerce think about how you can work for a fulfillment center or a tech company or be a driver or something because that's really one of the growth industries we have right now
0: so uh, a lot of folks are going to have to reevaluate just where they are and what their career is going to be which uh, could go into retraining i mean there's a lot of a lot of things that are going to be you know ancillary programs as a result of this people are going to have to change their attitudes
1: Definitely. And you know what, some of the big companies too realize that and I think they even offer training and things too. So, you know, um, it's definitely going to happen whether we like it or not. Best to kind of jump on the train now, get ready for the new
0: normal. Uh, You want to get a a read at this, uh, just go to the Toronto Sun webpage. It's up there now. And it's a fascinating piece. Bruce, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for this. I appreciate the time.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on anytime. Take care.
0: Take care. Bruce Weiner, of course, retail analyst and author, uh, talking about uh, Groundhog Day in Ontario, restrictions, lockdown, it's reopened, rinse, reopen again. And uh, sarcasm was not lost on us, but that's the reality for an awful lot of small businesses. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL in London and 900 CHML in Hamilton. Well, have you got your T-shirts yet? Have you seen these? This is our shot campaign. Uh, this is a, 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 an interesting idea here and an interesting enterprise. A whole bunch of celebrities and, and well-known Canadians uh, are, are actually coming together now to try to convince us to get vaccinated. Uh, it's a rather novel approach uh, to vaccination rollouts, and uh, it's, I guess it's working. I will find out in just a couple of seconds. Uh, to talk about the whole concept, though, please do welcome back to the program Alyssa Freeman, who's a PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa, hope you're doing well. Thanks for joining us today.
4: Always glad to be on your show, Bill, and hope you're doing well, too.
0: So far, so good. Uh, Have you got your T-shirt yet?
4: No. But
0: that doesn't mean I don't applaud this campaign. This is our shot. I hope, uh, by the way, that Lin-Manuel Miranda is getting something out of this, because that seems to be a kind of a a play on words to uh, to the great song, of course, he had in the musical Hamilton. Uh, But I like it. It's a play on words. Uh, Some folks, some pretty high-profile people like Ryan Reynolds, Haley Wickenheiser, Michael Bublé. I think you get a free can of his pop when you uh, get vaccinated with him. Uh, Is it (laughs) it necessary? Do we need the celebs to get us to, to, to move towards something like this?
4: Yes, because they have to pick up where the governments are leaving off. I mean, if you've seen some of the provincial ads that, you know, they're very, you know, this is why you need to get the shot. There are ads out there extolling the virtues of the vaccine. But, you know, people are wary of government. You know, they feel that they have ulterior motives as to why uh, you should get the shot. So I don't think that that's the majority of the people who think that. But I certainly think that there is a percentage. And we everybody counts. Every arm counts. Every jab counts. So in order to dispel those myths, I'm so glad to see that Ryan Reynolds and Haley Wickenheiser have teamed up again. Remember at the beginning of the pandemic, they were uh, part of a um, PPE uh, distribution effort, which did amazing. So here they are segueing into something else, thinking, okay, we need to step up again. So for them to play in this space, Bill is not unusual because they have already shown their fortitude and their determination in trying to help this effort, this pandemic effort, whether it was a distribution of PPE and now the vaccine.
0: Well, especially because you know, there has been, let's face it, uh, some vaccine hesitancy. Now, that, there's always going to be an element of the population that are like that. But, you know, there were some stories about AstraZeneca and, and some side effects. And uh, a lot of people might just think, ah, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Uh, but, you know, when you get a Ryan Reynolds or a Haley Wickenheiser or a Buble or somebody else, there's a number of other folks that are doing this now. Uh, that could be the influence. I mean, we, you know, people that we hold in high regard, if they're saying, look, it, I've done this, it's okay, go ahead, it's probably going to swing a few people in that direction.
4: Well, you know, this effort is really picking up where the government leaves off as far as I'm concerned. And mm-hmm. thank goodness there are groups like this that see the importance. See, what, what I found very interesting during this pandemic is the groundswell of – Sort of, you know, you know how we call people that take footage and uh, send it to the news, um, citizen journalists. I think that this mm-hmm. is more about citizen activism, but on a very large scale. And I hope that it does address that vaccine hesitancy. But more importantly, what what I when I dug into this, it addresses the hesitancy reasons. So, is it because of religious reasons? Is the vaccine vegan? Is it like you know? You look at this and you think, well, gee, who cares? But you know what? There are people who care sure and there are people who are taking up the mantle not just with this campaign but also by holding town halls and um a lot of MPs are doing this so and answering people's questions that cannot get answers elsewhere
0: it's interesting to watch this so there's a variation on the theme happening in the states i I don't know if you saw the the video on this the other day they're actually having barbecues uh vaccine barbecues you know to to get people to go to these mass vaccination sites you know you you get a free beer and a hot dog if you as long as you get vaccinated things of this nature i guess whatever it takes to get people in there i I guess you know the, the i hate to use the phrase but the end does justify the means here if we get them out there and get them vaccinated
4: well, 100% it does. Um, I think that in the States, there's more political reasoning as to why yeah. people are not getting vaccinated. And that's not something that we're necessarily seeing here, at least not in greater numbers. But I think that these campaigns are important. And, you know, you were right to point out that this is a, um, a riff on the lyric from Lynn manuel Miranda from the famous play Hamilton, um, you know, it's time to take the shot. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that he's tickled pink that you know uh, Canadians think enough of it, enough of it to actually use that in a way that is so helpful for uh, you know a, a broad uh, mass of people. And I hope that it does work. I like, I really do hope that it does work because right now I just may see that it's social media based because both Ryan Reynolds, well especially Ryan Reynolds and Hilly Wickenheiser and all the other celebrities that they're getting. On board, they're using a really tried and true strategy. Is that if you want to get a message out, get the people who also have large platforms of people that maybe you're not reaching to help you get that out too. So it's a it's a very savvy strategy.
0: Well, I'm glad to see this too, and I I know you guys have talked about this in the past, and you and I have had these discussions. Uh, Celebrities using their celebrity, and 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 sometimes I know that there's there's some pushback and say, well, they're abusing the 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 position which they're in. Uh, This is quite the opposite. This is the polar opposite. This is them taking advantage of the position that they're in. And you're right. There's a network there, isn't there? I mean, Ryan Reynolds, not just with his Twitter followers, but you know the other celebs. He and Hugh Jackman have a relationship. There's a lot of stuff going on there. And hey, come on, side with this. And all of a sudden. There's a groundswell.
4: Well, I think it's important. I think that it also shows different ethnicities. I think it shows yeah. different age ranges. And, you know, this is really, honestly, like when you go get a flu shot, do you actually say to the pharmacist, by the way, what brand is this? This whole notion of branding vaccines came really because of the pharmaceuticals themselves that were touting effectiveness. So we did this under a year. So let's show the results in order to have people, um, you know, have confidence in us. And as a result, you know, this sort of this brand shopping of vaccines, which is quite ridiculous, to be quite honest, Mm -hmm. um, has also resulted in hesitancy. So you hear about people saying, well, I don't want this one. I want that one. I have to tell you, as soon as I was age eligible, Bill, I, you know, I had my birthday on March 13th on the 14th. I was there getting some AstraZeneca right into my arms. So I I think that the younger you go, uh, there's less hesitancy on what vaccine you're getting as opposed to the older demographic.
0: I I asked just as they were putting it in my arm, by the way, which one is this? I didn't pay any attention. Just just register and get over there. That's what it comes down to.
4: Well, 100%. So really right now my focus is on getting my second one. Um, Might be three months, might be four months. I mean, I'm I'm hoping that that time frame uh, starts to... uh, To to lessen, and I think that people. The faster we do this, and the faster we get some sense of herd immunity, the faster we can get back to quote unquote normalcy. I think that all of us are looking, you know, uh, with jealousy at uh, music festivals happening in New Zealand and people getting together in uh, Australia and people outside at pubs in london and i think that we all crave that so i i hope that those media images also serve as a reminder that it's so important to get vaccinated
0: Well, on that point, I'll tell you what, Alyssa, we've got the health minister coming on right after the break, uh, after you and I finish up here, so I'll ask her that question, and hopefully we can get some clarity on that. So glad you could join us today. Uh, Stay well, and uh, we'll see if we can get you that second shot just as fast as we can here. I'll talk to the minister about that. We'll talk again soon. Can you you get on
4: that for me, Bill? Thank you.
0: I'm on that. I got you, okay? (laughs) As soon as she gets on, I'm going to say, look, Alyssa wants to know, okay? Inquiring minds need to know. (laughs) <laughs> Have a good weekend, Alyssa. Good talking to you. And you too. Take care Alyssa yourself. Freeman, of course, PR pop culture expert. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML. The Bill Kelly podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine till noon on nine hundred CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free. So you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.
1: For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hicks, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season 6 of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.